0: Amen. Well, good morning, Living Stones. It is good to be worshiping with all of you this morning. Uh, We uh, got back last night. We went back home to visit uh, family in Milwaukee. Uh, this weekend, and w- one of the traditions we have that, that always, we, we just always re- thoroughly enjoy is we do an ugly ornament exchange, and so like we, we, like we all go out of our way, every all of us in the family, we try to just find the most like gaudy, obnoxious, ridiculously ugly ornament, and then we do an ornament exchange with it, and so like in, in our house, we actually have an ugly ornament tree, so like Angela, Angela has her nice tree up in the living room, but downstairs, like, we have our ugly ornament tree that we put all of our misfit ornaments. We have, like, a, an armless surfing frog. Um, I have Drunk Santa. He's sipping a martini, laying on an olive. Um, jo- Josiah got this year, he, he bought a, uh, for all you Star Wars fans, Santa Claus Stuck in Carbonite, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing, and... Uh, but and but that will tie into our, our message today that, that we are be, uh, that we're continuing our series that we are calling a thrill of hope, where we're just talking about the idea that the the Christmas story didn't begin just 2,000 years ago in a, in a stable in, in Bethlehem. But the, 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 the Christmas story, the story of God redeeming his people, actually began all the way back at the very beginning. When, when Adam and Eve, they took the bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and, and God initiated and God started His rescue plan for all of humanity in that moment, that God recognized that, that His creation, His people that, that He created were in need of a Savior, and, and, and so began the, the, the work, so began the, the wheel started turning of preparing the world for the arrival of God's Son. And, and last week, what, what, one of the things I shared was a, a, a short video clip of, of flowers unfolding, that they start as, as just a small bud that doesn't look like much of anything. But eventually, they start to unfold, they start to open up, and, and you begin to see just this, this beautiful uh, flower that emerges from what looks like not much of, of anything. And, and and really using this as a metaphor for the story that God is writing even now today, that since the very beginning of Genesis up through today, that God's story, God's redemption story is continuing to open. It's continually continuing to unfold in front of us. And, and, and throughout time, this is what we talked last Sunday, throughout time, God has given glimpses. He's given small little sneak peeks of, of what was to come, that he god spoke through the prophets and, and the prophets would would share just little little snippets of all right, this is what's going to happen that that the messiah the savior is going to come he's he's going to be born of a virgin he's going to come from bethlehem that he he's going to travel to egypt that, that he is going to redeem his people that he is going to provide hope to the hopeless and 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 all throughout the centuries god dropped these just these little these little snippets these little uh, uh um uh, sneak peeks of what was to come with the coming Savior. And and if you look at your Bible, your Bible is divided into two sections. The, the New Testament, the second part of your Bible, it, it's the story uh, of everything that, that, that took place from the birth of Jesus on. And the Old Testament is everything prior to that, right? everything that took place prior to Jesus coming. And, and, and at the end of your… Uh, at the end of the Old Testament… There's 12 books that are called the, the Minor Prophets. Uh, last year we did a series uh, where we took a look at some of those books of the Minor Prophets. We, we called the series Books We Don't Read because often it, it's uh, books that we end up glossing over and we don't spend all that much time and attention on. But the, the Minor Prophets are, are the last 12 books of your Old Testament. And the very final one of the, the, the Minor Prophets, his name was Malachi. Malachi, he, he, was, uh, he too prophesied about the, the coming Messiah, he prophesied about what was going to happen when, when Jesus came, but Malachi was the last one of the prophets, that after, after uh, of centuries, thousands of years, where, where God spoke to His people, He would raise up a prophet, and He would speak to His people through the prophets, after Malachi, there was just silence, it, it was just like a, a, a dial tone that there, there was nothing there. And, and so began 400 years of silence, 400 years where God did not communicate. God did not speak to His people during this time. And, and this, was, this was extremely unique for a whole host of reasons. One of them was because God consistently spoke to His people. So, I mean, th- this was highly unusual, where God, did, God was silent. God did not speak to His people. He wasn't sharing with them uh, words of encouragement or words of warning or, or prophecies of what was to come, that, that after Malachi, there was just nothing. There was just silence for four centuries. And I, I don't know if there's anybody who, who's been in a relationship where you've either been on the, the giving end or the receiving end of, of the silent treatment. It's not fun, you know, like it, it, your spouse is maybe upset with you, and instead of coming out and telling you what's wrong, they just don't say anything. I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn here because my wife would stand here and tell you this. Like, I, I don't have to worry about that. Like, Angela will always let me know what's going on. She'll always let me know what, what she's thinking and what's going on in her head. So I, d- I don't have to wonder too much about what's, what's going on. But that silence can be extremely frustrating, it, it can be extremely frustrating because it's hard to interpret. All right, What does that silence mean? Are, are you angry? Are you hurt? Are you upset? Are you Are you frustrated? Like, is something wrong? I, like I just I, I don't know that the ambiguity that comes with silence can be extremely frustrating. Now, now God, he was not giving his, his people the silent treatment in the way that we often think of of that. He wasn't angry or hurt or upset. But for four centuries, God did not raise up any prophets. God did not talk to and communicate with His people. For 400 years, they, they were not knowing right, what was happening, what was going to, to come. And, and I wish I had time to to fully dive into all that took place during this 400-year period, period of time. The theologians call it the intertestamental period, the time between when the Old Testament ended and the New Testament began, be, because there was a lot of uh, uh, geopolitical and social happenings that helped kind of pave the way and set the stage for the coming of, of Jesus. But when the 400 years of silence ended, when God finally did start speaking to His people again, He didn't do it the way that, that you and I or, or a PR marketing firm would likely, would likely have, have suggested. The, the very first people, The very first people to hear the good news about the coming of Jesus, the the coming of the Messiah, it was not the rich and powerful. It wasn't the the well-connected and the influential. It wasn't the, the social media influencers and those who had a large platform and a large following, as he always seems to do, and this would be the pattern for the rest of his ministry, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that the story of Jesus was first revealed to the marginalized. When, when, when God finally announced, when, when He broke that 400 years of silence, and, and He began talking about the coming of the Messiah, He didn't speak to the rich and powerful. He spoke to those who were on the margins, who were on the fringes of, of society. He didn't book time on, on CNN or Fox. He didn't pay for a 30-minute infomercial between Flex Seal and ShamWow or, or anything like that, and, and he, didn't, he didn't take the TikTok or Instagram to share about what was to come. But the very first people to hear were those who had the least amount of clout, the least amount of influence, the, the least amount uh, uh, of, uh, of anything to give to the story and add to the story. And so when, when Gabriel, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel came and spoke, he, he spoke to this poor teenage girl who was engaged to be married. And, and so in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says, in the six month." of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is uh, Mary's cousin who who was pregnant with John the Baptist. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And in a moment, this poor young, young girl, who is likely 13, 14, 15 years old, finds out that she's about to be an unwed teenage mother, becoming pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Like, and, and no doubt there's, there's a stigma still attached today with, with uh, un, unwed teenage pregnancy, but I don't think we can overstate how scandalous this would have been for a young Jewish girl 2,000 years ago, that she would have been made an outcast immediately with, with few resources and, and very few shoulders to cry on very little support systems around her. And without, without power, without influence, without means, or without reputation, Mary, she became the first one to hear, the very first one to hear about this next chapter in God's unfolding, unfolding story of, of the coming of the Messiah. And then after Mary was told, the second person, the second one who was who is, who is made aware of what God was going to do, the, 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 the uh, petals are starting to unfold just a little bit more, is her fiancé, Joseph, a poor carpenter. And God begins to share the story with him. Joseph, Joseph he found out about Mary being pregnant, and, and he was going to divorce her quietly. He was going to put her uh, away quietly. But the angel steps in yet again, and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, but after he had considered this, after he considered divorcing Mary quietly... When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Like, this, this is how the story of Jesus, the story of the coming Messiah first, first was revealed. God could, have, God could have chosen any means possible. He, he could have chosen anybody to share this story with. He could have picked anyone in the entire world throughout all of time to make this announcement of the arrival of the Messiah, and He purposely chose the ones on the edges. He chose the, the, the least of these, those who had the least amount of influence and power and clout. And as I stated last week, nothing about the story of Jesus is coincidental. Like, no, nothing just happened. God, God was extremely purposeful and thoughtful in how he carried this out and how he unfolded this story of the coming of his son. But again, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the announcement of the coming of Jesus. It, it wasn't just that, that announcement that, that was unconventional in the way that it was shared, that it was shared with, with those on the margins first. But this was the hallmark of Jesus' entire life, that, that that's, who he, that's who he ministered to, that's who he talked with. Je, Jesus did not hang out with the well connected. Like he hung out with those purposely that were deemed less than by society. He lived as, and, and not only did he hang out with them, he actually lived as one himself. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down that Jesus himself was a refugee. Like n- not, not only did, did Jesus hang out with those on the margins and the fringes of society, Jesus was one himself. This was a part of his story. And we've, we maybe not have heard much of this in, in recent years. But a couple of years back, there was a, a big debate that was raging in our country of what is our responsibility as Americans towards refugees, towards people that, that have been forced from their homes, those who have been forced and displaced from their homes to escape from war and, and persecution and violence and, and natural disaster? Like as a nation, as individuals, what is our responsibility? What is our responsibility to them? And, and, and I would argue that, that we ought to welcome and do everything we can to help and support those who have been displaced from their homes. That through no fault of their own, they've been forced from their homes in order to live, to, to try to live and support their families. Like we, we have, as, as a church, as a nation, we have a moral obligation to help those who find themselves in that situation. If for no other reason, because that was the situation Jesus found himself in as well. That was part of his story that Jesus himself was a refugee. When, when the Magi came, the wise men came, and, and they visited King Herod. And they inquired, all right, where can we find this newborn king of the Jews? Herod became in, insanely jealous. To the point where he ordered all of the male boys that were two years old or younger and in the vicinity of Bethlehem to be slaughtered. Because he didn't want anybody challenging his, his throne. Like, just think about that fact for a moment. Just the insane, the, the immense cruelty that Herod uh, in, enacted upon the, the people of Bethlehem because of his, his cruelty. And, and because of this, Matthew writes in, in his gospel in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, After the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother the angel said, and stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And that night, that very night, Joseph didn't, he didn't wait around. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and with Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. And this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Like Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, like they, they were displaced, from their home. They were forced to flee to Egypt to escape this infanticide that was taking place at the time in their homeland. And and Jesus, like He could understand and He could relate to and sympathize with those on the fringes, those with refugees, because He was one. He lived that life. Jesus knew what it was like to flee for His life. He knew what it was like to be poor. Jesus knew what it was like to have no place to lay His head he knew what it was like to be displaced, or excuse me, despised by his own people. He could relate because he lived it. That was his experience, and and no doubt that like this this was a part of of Jesus's upbringing. It was a part of his story that he continued as he carried on his entire ministry. Jesus caring for those that are on the outside; those those that are not part of what we would consider the in-crowd. But, but not only were the marginalized the first ones to hear and receive this news of, of the coming Savior, Jesus spent the next 33 years of his life caring for and loving those on the margins and on the fringes. The next point, if you're writing this down, would be that Jesus' ministry was spent with the outcast, with the disenfranchised and the alienated. Like, this, this is what Jesus did. This is how he spent his time. For, for so many of us, like like our, our ambitions in life, we, we want to move up. We want to move out. We want a, big, a better paying job. We want a bigger home, better neighborhood. We want to be noticed by people. We want to be noticed by the right people. Like, I, I remember when I was a kid, we, I told you we drove back to Milwaukee and spent some time with family over the, the last few days. And we drove past the, the home I grew up in, uh, back back in Milwaukee when we celebrated, and, and it was a fairly busy street that my the home I grew up in was on. Um, it was right off of I 43s. You're heading north uh, up up through Milwaukee up towards Green Bay, and and when I was a kid, I would go outside and I'd play basketball out in out in our driveway, and I'd, I'd shoot hoops. And and I, obviously I'm five foot seven. I had no future ambitions or career. In basketball, and but but I'd go out there, and and at the time, Del Harris, he was the coach of the of the Milwaukee Bucks, and I had these just illusions of grandeur, that Del Harris was going to drive by someday. He's going to watch this ten year old kid shooting hoops outside, and he was just going to be so inspired that he was going to say, "Hey, I want you to come try out for the team." Like I like, in my ten year old brain, I this is what I thought was going to happen, and and I had these I had these dreams, I had these aspirations of of being famous, of being rich, of being this amazing athlete that people, people would know my name, people, you know, they, they'd notice me, they would want my autograph, they would pay money to come watch me play. Like, I, I had all these thoughts as a, as a 10-year-old. And, and as silly as it is to think about, I think we've all had somewhat thoughts like that of, all right, what life is going to be like? What are the things I'm going to be able to do and achieve? Who are the people I'm going to be able to rub shoulders with? Who, who are the people that are going to notice me, that I want to be famous someday? I want, I want, to, I want, I want people to, to know me. I want to be important. And it's so interesting because Jesus' approach to being important and being noticed and being a big deal was not moving upward, but it is actually descending downward to reach and to be around those that everybody else seemed to overlook. That was that was how Jesus defined success. His entire ministry was dedicated to this very pursuit. I'll give you an example in Luke chapter five, which, by the way, if you want, if you want a uh, kind of a crash course in Jesus's ministry to to the outcast, read the Gospel of Luke. It, it's an incredible like as you read through it, the people that Jesus reached out to and talked to and ministered to and 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 took notice of, Luke. Thoroughly documents all of those. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, it says In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. And when the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and he touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Like probably some of the most despised and ostracized people in Jesus' day were those that suffered from leprosy. This disease was, was so feared that the people that, that contracted leprosy, they, they were forced to leave their families, leave their homes, and, and literally made to live outside the city walls, that they were not able to, to be around and associate with, with their family, with their loved ones at all. They, they, everyone kept their distance from them. And yet on multiple occasions, not, not just this instance, but multiple occasions that we read, Jesus didn't just go to be with them, but he physically touched them as well. Jesus went out of his way to have physical contact with those that nobody wanted to even see, much less be near. Children at the time, like children at the time, they were to be seen and not heard. Often children were seen as, as a commodity. You know, the more children you could have, the, you know, you had more to help with the labor around the house, in the field, on the farm, at work, you know, whatever it might be. And yet when Jesus' own disciples, when, when they attempted to shoo some children away, to get them away from Jesus, He actually rebukes them in Matthew 19. He says, let the little children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these he wanted to spend time with those who, who were overlooked, who were misunderstood, and this was his story everywhere that he went. Another marginalized group in his day would be, would be women, and, and this is an, an overgeneralization, but, but often women at the time were seen more as property than a person. And talking to a woman, especially talking to a woman in, in public, was highly restricted, and, and yet... He openly talked to, to, to the woman at, at Jacob's Well. Women were some of his most devoted and dedicated followers. But one particular interaction that Jesus had was with the woman who had the, the, an issue of blood. She had a bleeding disorder. She had, she had heard of, about Jesus, and she had been suffering with, with this disorder for 12 years, that she had had the, this issue of blood. And, and as Jesus walked, walked past her, she, she heard about Jesus, and, and as He walked past one day, she just reached out and just touched the, the hem of His cloak. And this might not seem all that significant to us today, but this would have been completely scandalous in Jesus' time, that, that a woman who, who was menstruating, she was considered unclean And this was highly significant at the time. In in the book of Leviticus, the Hebrew word that's used for unclean is used nearly a hundred times. And it it generally denotes something that's not fit for ceremonial or or corporate worship. That that if somebody was unclean, so somebody who had leprosy, they were considered unclean. So a woman who had just had a baby was considered unclean. A a woman on on her cycle was considered unclean. And and so anything that that, that that person would touch was then made ceremonially unclean as well. And this woman with the issue of blood, she reached out, she touched Jesus, and what would have normally had significant consequences. And Jesus, he looked around, he asked, all right, who touched me? And in Luke chapter 8, it says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and had that she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus does not rebuke her. He does not have her punished, which would have been well within his right to do. But instead, he publicly affirms her in this moment. He gives her this term of endearment. He calls her daughter. And he, in this moment, like he rejects the, the stigma and this fallacy that, that this issue of blood was defiling at all. And, and, and from the very beginning, like th- this was the story of Jesus. I, I could give you more and more and more examples of this. From the announcement of his birth throughout his entire life in ministry, that those on, on the outside, those on the fringes, those who are overlooked and misunderstood and looked down upon, the poor, the weak, the downtrodden, They were the focus of Jesus' ministry. The the phrase that Ben Franklin made famous in his Poor Richard's Almanac, where he said, God helps those that help themselves. You've probably all heard that at one time or another. And that phrase is such an untruth, because the fact is Jesus spent his entire ministry helping those who could not help themselves. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't help those who helped themselves. Jesus came to help those who could not help themselves. He devoted his entire life and ministry to those who had no place in society. And it's this idea that prompted Paul to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 127. He says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one May boast before him. Let, last year we, we did a, a series, and it was probably one of my favorite series that we've done. We called it Hidden Figures and, and it was this, it was the series where we focused on on women and their story in the Bible. And one of the weeks we took a, a look at, at Mary Magdalene. and this is probably one of my favorite messages that I shared and, and, and I want to share with you a passage about Mary Magdalene that show that, that really kind of ties into this idea, this Christmas story that that we're talking about. That at the time, Jesus, He had been crucified, He had been laid in the tomb, and and because touching a dead body would have made somebody unclean, as I was talking about that just a few moments ago, touching a dead body would have made somebody unclean, so they could not have participated in the Sabbath. So so the day after the Sabbath, on Sunday, that's when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body. And in John chapter 20, starting in verse 11, it said, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for and thinking that he was the gardener? She said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She instantly recognized him when he called her name. And while the rest of Jesus' followers fled, while they hid, Well, while Peter denied having ever even known Jesus, Mary comes to the tomb and she has this encounter with Jesus right there. Instead of running away, she ran to him. And continues in verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But instead... Go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene she went to the disciples with the news I have seen the Lord. And she told them that uh, and she told them that he had said these things to her that she was the very first one to see the risen Jesus. That she was the very first one that after Jesus had been crucified and rose back to life, Jesus chose her, Mary Magdalene to be the very per- first one to have that experience. Like, like he was the author of, God was the author of the story. Like he was orchestrating every detail, every aspect of this story. And he, as, he, as he's weaving it together, he chose Mary Magdalene to be the first person to witness the, the resurrection of Jesus. Again, just, just like with, with Mary, he could have chosen anybody in the entire history of the world to be the first eyewitness to the resurrection, the greatest moment in history. And who did he pick? He picked Mary Magdalene. He, picked, he intentionally chose a woman, a woman who had a past. And, and this was so incredibly significant, because at this time, a woman's testimony would not have held up in court. She, she would not have been able to, to testify publicly about what she had seen that a woman's testimony was not admissible. There would have had been multiple women or the voice of a man that corroborated her story, and yet Jesus threw all that out the window and He said, now I want you, Mary, I want you to go and tell everybody what you've seen. I want you to be the one to go and be that first evangelist telling everybody about what had taken place. This woman that was mentioned only briefly in Scripture has this incredible distinction for all time, but now rewinding to the very beginning of Jesus' life, on the night that He was born, that the very first to be the witness, eyewitnesses to the birth of the Messiah was a group of poor shepherds who were out taking care of their sheep one night. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you, and and you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, now a a shepherd at the time, it was not the most honorable profession in the world. Like when when I was a boy, I, I... I told you I had these dreams of being a, an NBA basketball player. I wanted to be an astronaut, a paleontologist, like I wanted to be like Indiana Jones. Like like in Jesus' day, little boys didn't like dream, "Oh, I just I want to I want to raise sheep when I get older." Like that 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 was not at the top of the list. They were again ones that were on the margins, on the fringes, who most people would just assume to forget. And yet they were the very first ones to be able to see and witness the newborn Savior. Continuing in Luke 2, it says, When they had seen Him, when they had gone and seen Jesus, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which they had, which were just as they had been told. And you think about it, just as Mary Magdalene, a woman who was on the fringes, who had a past, she was the very first one to to witness the resurrected Jesus. She was the very first evangelist. She was the very first one to go and share the good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. This group of misfit shepherds were the first to witness the birth of Jesus. They were the first evangelists that we just read in verse 17, that they went out and they shared this news with everybody that they encountered. You're not going to believe what we heard, what we saw, what we encountered, what, what, what happened. It's amazing. Like Jesus' book ended his time on this earth with the outcasts of society. And everything in the middle was also dedicated and devoted to them. It's who he was drawn to, and and so it, it, it's easy to hear a message like this and and nod our head in agreement. Like I mean, we we all like we love this aspect of, of Jesus and who he was. We love that that he was a, a man who 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 was for those who had no place, who had no clout and no influence, and no no resources. Like we we love that Jesus was not just a savior just for the rich and the powerful, but he was also a Savior for the downtrodden and the oppressed. We we love that about His story. But what is our application to this? How do we take this feature of of Jesus' life and implement it in our own lives? And and so, I want to to pose a, a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently. As I've been thinking about this this Christmas season, uh, this this holiday season, you know, just coming out of Thanksgiving and heading into Christmas, and I've been asking myself, who are the outcasts? Who are the marginalized? Who are those on the fringes in my life today? Who are the people that I often overlook? Who are the ones that I encounter who have no resources? Who can't help themselves? Who are the ones? today that Jesus would be coming and ministering to and spending time with? And how can I be a reflection of Jesus to them today? Not, not, just, not just like the, this, this abstract concept that, that we like and we nod and we agree with, but how do I make this personal? How, how, do, I, how do I make this? How do, how do I actually implement this in my own life? And, and I want to challenge us with, with those same questions. Who are, who are the them in our lives? Who are the ones that we encounter that are overlooked and misunderstood? You know, maybe it's, it's those in the LGBTQ community that feel invisible. Maybe, maybe it's our teenagers who are trying to navigate just the craziness of life right now. Maybe it's the woman at work who's been married and divorced five times. Maybe it's the widow who has nobody to spend the holidays with. Maybe it's the relative who's been dealing with addiction issues that we just don't talk about, and we just try to forget. It's going to be different for every one of us. But I I want us to take it one more step. Like, if if we're truly going to be the body of Christ, if we're going to be that that living, breathing representation of Jesus, reflecting His love to all people, like, I don't want us just acknowledging that, yeah, that was Jesus' heart that he was for the outcast and he was for those on the margins but are we willing to open ourselves up are we willing to open up our lives and open up ourselves to those that others don't like are we really are we really willing to walk with and to talk to and to touch and be present with those who are forgotten and so this this Christmas season, as we think about the very people that were the first ones to hear this amazing story, the Messiah had finally come. Who are those people in our life? Who are those people that, that, that we, we're not beating them over the head with, with the Bible, and, all right, you, you need to know, no, no how, how do we share this story? How, how do we pass this story on? Who are those on the margins? Who are those on the fringes in your life, in my life? What can I do to open myself up to them? Not just love the idea, not just love the concept, but how do I actually do it? Like this Christmas, like my, my prayer for us as a church body is that we would reflect that heart of those who are on the fringes, that we would be able to shine his light to those, and that he would, he would shine that light through us in ways that maybe we've not considered before. Are we willing to be uncomfortable? Are we willing to do things that are difficult, that are hard? Are we willing to open up our, our home, our, you know, to somebody who has no place to go on Christmas Day? Come over. Be a part, part of our family for the day. That's Jesus' heart. Those that are overlooked. Those on the fringes, those on the edges. So I'm going to close. I, I just want to pray for us right now. I'm pray that God would give us eyes to see those people that maybe we've overlooked before. So if you would, would you bow your heads right now? Lord, God, we are just humbled by you, and we're so incredibly grateful and thankful, God, for who you are. God, we love you. And Lord, I, I, I ask you, Lord, that you would just give us that same passion, that same desire, Lord, that you have for the broken, for the hurting, for those on the fringes and the margins, for those on the outside, for those that are overlooked and misunderstood. God, that you would help us in, in our own lives. God, to be able to, to have eyes to see them, Lord, that we would be willing to be uncomfortable to open up our lives and open up our homes and, and our hearts to, to people that, that maybe are closed off to most everybody else. God, that you would give us that same passion, that same desire. Lord, we, we, we love that about you. We love that that's who you are. That you are the God of the one that, that's on the edges and the margins and the fringes. But God, we want to take it a step further. We, we want to be that person just like you. We want to open our, our home and our lives to those that need it. So, Father, this Christmas season... Lord, as we get ready to, to celebrate in anticipation of, of your birth, the story that has that unfolded and is opening up right, at, right in front of us as, as we speak here today, God, that you would help us. God, to see beyond what we can see with our own eyes. God, that we would see people from your perspective, see people from, from your vantage point and your point of view. God, to love people well. God, we're so incredibly grateful for you and we love you. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Pat.